Heavenly Father, Father, for your word tonight, we ask that the Holy Spirit, as he has done so well throughout all of these days in this study, would continue to show us your truth and your word. Make us to understand it, to respect it, to obey it. And to do so, Father, with the intent that we would please you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's revisit what we just did last week. In chapter 32, the nation of Israel broke the terms of the covenant when they worshipped that golden calf. So we have a covenant that was established and broken. As a result of that sin, last week, the Lord declared that all of the nation of Israel would be killed other than Moses, which would be the normal penalty for violating a covenant, by the way. But instead, Moses interceded on the behalf of the people and he offered his own life to spare theirs. And in the process, of course, he formed that picture of the Messiah, the one whose life was given for us because we break the law ourselves. And so the Lord, because of Moses's intercession, he delayed the execution of that penalty against that generation of Israel. Remember, he delayed it. They do eventually die and they are dying as a result of their sin. They're barred from entering into his rest, that is, into the promised land. So all of the penalty God said would have to attach for their sin still comes about. But the Lord condemned them to die slowly as opposed to all at once which was in keeping with the intercession Moses made, that this would be better for God's name and his glory if they were not to have been killed in that way. So the Lord said, I will honor your request, but they will surely still pay the price, he said. So the word of God concerning this situation never really changed. They are under a penalty of sin because they broke the covenant and they will die. Meanwhile, however, the covenant with Israel has been broken as well. This relationship with The Lord and Israel formed through this covenant has been broken, which means that the Lord is no longer bound by his word in that covenant to do the things he said he would do for Israel. He is no longer required to do that. So as we enter into chapter 33, the Lord and Israel stand at a crossroads because the question is, will the nation go forward with the Lord leading them on as he promised? Or will the Lord abandon them, which is his right to do now because of the violation of the covenant? Verses one through three. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. So at the end of chapter 32, he told the people, if you remember, that he would return. Moses would return to the Lord to see if there's something he could do to salvage the covenant after they violated it. And so here we now see at the beginning of chapter 33, Moses standing before the Lord, having gone back up and Moses receives good news and bad news from the Lord. The good news is found in verses one through two. That's where we heard that the Lord says the people will enter into the land that he promised. They will enter into Canaan and he will send an angel before them to make sure that they can enter the land and conquer it successfully. And more importantly, in those verses, the Lord also says why he is going to do this for them. He is acting, he says, to fulfill a promise he gave to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, beginning with what he said to Abraham in Genesis 15. And of course, he's referring to the Abrahamic covenant, which was the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants, which was at the time a one way suzerainty agreement, one that was not dependent on the performance of Abraham or any of his descendants. It was merely based on God's promise that he himself would do these things irrespective of what they did. It was a one-way promise. And so, in fact, Abraham had no terms at all. There was never anything even requested of him. He merely received the blessing. So that promise came without any conditions, and therefore that promise cannot change. There is no chance for God to go back on his word. So when he acknowledges it to Moses, he's simply stating the obvious. I've made a promise I'm going to keep. They will enter into the land. That was not going to change because of their sin. But then came the bad news. The bad news was in verse three. The Lord tells Moses that the people are to go to the promised land by themselves, that he is not going to go up in their midst. That phrase is a powerful statement, because in that one phrase, the Lord has revoked everything he stated in chapters 25 through 31, which is principally the building of the tabernacle. 
By that statement, he's saying no tabernacle, no dwelling, none of my presence. All that's off the table now. You go on your own. Now, the tabernacle was intended, according to the the law and according to what God told Moses, it was intended to serve as the place where God could dwell among his people. But because of the sin of the nation under the covenant, the Lord now says he no longer plans to dwell with them. And therefore, that would negate the need for the tabernacle. It doesn't have a purpose if God's glory is not inhabiting it. Furthermore, the Lord says in verse three that if he dwelt with them, referring to them, meaning this generation of Israel, if I were to dwell with you, I would likely destroy you anyway, because you're so obstinate or, if you know, as that's literally translated stiff necked again. Right. Because they won't submit, the neck won't bend. They won't submit to him. It means it would only be a matter of time before they offend him again, do something else to break the covenant, provoke him to anger and then ultimately to their own destruction. It is grace to you that I don't dwell in your presence under these conditions. So everything we're hearing here confirms what the writer of Hebrews has to say concerning this generation of Israel, the generation that came out of Egypt. For example, in Hebrews 3, 16 through 19, the writer says, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not? With those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter his rest because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. And then in the very next passage of Exodus, we learn the people's reaction to hearing that the Lord is not going to dwell among them. That everything that had been offered has now been rescinded. Verses 4 through 6. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would destroy you. Now, therefore, put off your ornaments from you that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Well, indeed, they heard a sad word to say it, to to put it lightly. And so they go into a period of mourning. We're told well, mourning over their sin, a mourning over the consequences that the Lord imposed. Excuse me. So as a sign of their mourning, we're told that the Lord instructs them to remove all their ornaments. That ornaments in the Hebrew just means jewelry and other trappings. And they were to go about in a plain or very bare appearance because of what they had done as a sign of their mourning. Notice in verse five, the Lord tells them the same thing. That he told Moses they were so stiff necked that they would be in jeopardy of destruction if he remained in their midst. Now, remember, stiff necked in scriptural terms does not mean stubborn as in, hey, they, they, they just have a tendency to do their own thing. No, it, it, in scripture, it has a spiritual connotation. It refers to someone who does not have belief. It is a sign of unbelief to call someone stiff necked. They're not bowing. They're not submitting to the Lord. So the Lord is saying here that he would be forced to destroy them eventually because of their unbelief if he dwelt in their midst. So then he tells them, strip off your ornaments and keep them off while I decide what I'm going to do with you. Now, why does the Lord make that statement? I mean, first of all, we know he doesn't need time to make up his mind. Secondly, why does he want them to strip themselves of jewelry in the meantime? That seems an odd requirement. Well, the answer it gives us another connection back to the fall in the garden. We've been noting how the circumstances of Israel in the desert and the fall that's happened mirrors the circumstances of what you see happening in the garden. And here's another example of that. When Adam and woman fell in the garden, they experienced a lot of different consequences for their sin. They were set outside the garden and in doing so, they lost that ability to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. And now we've seen the same consequence in this moment, of course, where the Lord says, I can't be in your presence anymore or I would destroy you. That's a very similar parallel. Secondly, Adam and woman were immediately aware that they were naked. You remember that, of course. They sensed they were bare. They were vulnerable. They understood they had this vulnerability before the Lord, so they hid from him. Now you see a similar form of consequence in this case, in the sense that obviously the Lord is not going to require his people to strip naked in response to their sin. That's no longer appropriate. That doesn't have to be the case here. In fact, going naked was what got them into trouble in the first place. So we aren't looking to repeat that mistake. Instead, what the Lord is asking to do is strip bare of any adornments. 
And through that request, the Lord creates a comparable picture of sorts between the garden and this moment where the people stop wearing the jewelry from this point forward in their desert wanderings. In the sense, it's a comparable situation to Adam and woman forever being vulnerable and naked going out of the garden and needing now covering, needing something to cover their sin and their shamefulness. That's the situation these people are in now. They need God to do something to cover their sin. Then Moses explains how. The breaking of the covenant has impacted the Lord's presence in the camp of Israel. And Moses explains it in verses 7 through 10. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. So when Moses speaks about this in the past tense, but you have to remember, Moses is writing this years after it happened. So. Even though it's written in the past tense, it's describing what started to happen after the sin at the base of the mountain. Moses, before this moment, has described the location of this tent as in the midst of the camp. Now he's describing it as having been pitched outside the camp. Because up to this point in the story of Exodus, the glory of God with the fire and the cloud always descended over the camp of Israel. Now, for the first time, we're told that it's no longer positioned in the midst of Israel. Now, the tent of meeting and the cloud and the fire are going on outside the camp of Israel. It's been moved from within to without, to outside the camp. That situation clearly creates the image that God is no longer in the midst of his people. He's on the outside. And now as a result of the sin, Moses has to move from within to the outside to meet with God and then come back. And that creates this interesting dynamic in which he can be seen walking out to visit God and walking back from visiting God. And in verse seven, we're told that anyone who would seek for the Lord would also have to do this same thing. They have to go out to find God. And then we're told, and very interestingly, when Moses made one of his trips, everybody saw it coming because they could see him walking. And they'd stand there gazing at him as he went by, almost like a like a review. And then as he went in there and the cloud descended, and everybody knew that they were meeting. Then they would start worshiping at their tents, I guess, facing the cloud, maybe. Notice what triggered them to participate in the act of worship. The appearance of a physical manifestation of God's glory over Moses's tent of meeting. That's what triggered worship. What does that tell you about this generation of Israel? We could say it's nice to see him worshiping. We could. But what does the Bible say about faith? Hebrews 11.1, for example, which we probably all know. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, not seen. True faith is an acceptance of things not seen. And what must faith hold, according to Scripture, in that same chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 11.6? Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So we must believe not only that God is, James tells us that that doesn't get you very far because even the demons are smart enough to understand that God is. No, you also have to believe in his promises, in the promises that he extends to those who love him, that He has promised good things to come, and we hold those promises to be true even now before they become reality. The conviction of things not seen. So the believer is one who has faith in God and in his promises. And then finally, in John 4, 24, Jesus says this. How do we demonstrate our faith to him through worship? Jesus says in John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus said men are to worship God in spirit. What that means is we must worship him in his invisible form. To worship him in truth means to worship him according to his word, to what is known, what he has revealed. So we are to worship him by who he is in his invisible form and what he has said in his word. Those are things that cannot be seen. Those are things that cannot be touched. You accept them on faith alone. So 
for one who would read the word of God and say, well, I need tangible proof to know this is true. They are not worshiping in spirit or in truth to one who says, well, I'll believe God when I can see him in front of me or when I see the burning bush. You're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12 that this generation, speaking of the one in Exodus 34, this generation could not stand. They could not survive Though they worshipped at a mountain where they could touch, it says, and see and hear. And then the writer says, but we worship greater things, things that we have yet to see, things that are in heaven. Thus demonstrating our true faith. The point is, anyone can worship, so to speak, what they see. It's called idolatry. Worshipping what is true but cannot be seen is the definition of faith. These people are evidencing their lack of faith by the ironic fact that they only worship when they see the cloud. But when he's not there, they worship a calf. So in this new location outside the camp, Moses goes to speak to the Lord in the tent of meeting. And he's going there in an attempt to repair this relationship. And he has made a point to beseech the Lord to continue forward with the people because he believes that is the only way in which the people can go forward. Verses 11 through 13. Thus... Moses writes, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Well, now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Well, in verse 11, we see that Moses now is beginning to try to repair the relationship and we're told that he meets with God face to face. Now, the phrase face to face in Hebrew does not suggest a theophany. Theophany is a physical manifestation of God. Uh, like the bush that burned or the cloud or the fire. Those are theophanies. This does not suggest a theophany. Moses is not staring into God's face, so to speak. In fact, it is going to become readily apparent here as we end the chapter that he could not have done that. Instead, it refers to the degree of intimacy that he is communicating with God in. This is a degree of intimacy reference. No man since Adam has enjoyed the kind of regular intimate communication with the Lord that Moses was given here. That's the significance of this phrase face to face. And nor would any prophet be given this kind of intimate relationship again until the time of Jesus. In fact, Moses becomes forever known as the man who spoke to God face to face because of this unique relationship. Alongside Moses was a man, Joshua. Now, he's a young man at this point, but he's been given a great responsibility. He guards the tent of meeting in Moses's absence. So when Moses leaves, Joshua stays behind to guard it. That's a very early indication of what we all know happened later, which is Joshua became the successor for Moses. Then in verses 12 through 17, Moses appears before the Lord and he begins to make this request in an attempt to repair the covenant. And the request has two parts. First, Moses makes a request for himself. In verse 12, he reminds God that it was God himself that ordered Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. That's where we started in this book, right? And that God promised him when he gave him that assignment that God would go up with him to the promised land, that he would not leave Moses to this work without God at his side. That was the promise God gave Moses back. Remember when Moses made all his objections to why he couldn't serve? And God said, I would be with you. And so now Moses, very smartly, turns to God and says, you've told me to go. You told me you're not going, but you haven't told me who's going with me because you said I, you would be with me. And then Moses says, God told him previously that Moses had received favor. And the word favor in Hebrew there is the same word for grace. So Moses says, first, you told me you'd be with me. Secondly, you told me I received your grace, your favor. So Moses says to God that if Moses had received God's grace, then he says, let me know your ways. Let me find favor in your sight. There's that word grace again. What he's saying by those words is the, he's asking the Lord to establish an intimate relationship with him on the basis of grace. This is very important. Moses is saying to God, you've told me you will show me grace. I want that now. And I want a relationship with you that's based on grace. In fact, the word for grace appears here four times in his appeal. 
So Moses is asking for assurance that on the basis of God's grace, he will never leave him. That's an interesting change of the terms, isn't it? Up until now, the relationship that he's had has been based on the law. The law said that there would be a relationship between God and Israel on the basis of their performance against the terms of the law. Well, those terms have been broken. And Moses is smart enough now to know that if you were to see God repair the relationship on the basis of law, that's only going to last a short time. Any relationship based on law can't last. And so Moses is asking to establish a different kind of relationship with him personally, one that's based on loving kindness, on grace. In the second part of his appeal, Moses then reminds the Lord that the nation was Israel. This nation, Israel, was God's people, not his people, God's people. He's appealing to that first covenant again, the Abrahamic covenant. In that covenant, the Lord promised Abraham that he would make Abraham's descendants a great nation. And God said he would bring those descendants into the law, which is what God himself has already acknowledged a few passages earlier. So Moses appeals to that. And on behalf of Israel, he says, I want you to be with me because you said you'd find favor in me. I want that grace. And you should stay with your people because you called them as your people by a different covenant, one that is also based on grace. And you shouldn't forsake them either for that reason. So what does the Lord say to these arguments? Verses 14 and onward. And he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other peoples who are upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. The Lord agrees to Moses' request without conditions. There are no conditions to his, to his willingness to accompany him now, are there? You just saw the Lord establish a personal covenant with Moses, a one-way suzerainty covenant on the basis of grace. It's a covenant that God says to Moses, you will never be without me, and I will follow my people all the way until they enter the land. And then Moses follows up and he says, well, how can it be made known to the world and to your people that you are going to do this thing, that your new promise is now in effect? What Moses is seeking is a sign of this new promise. We could say a sign of this new covenant. And the Lord responds again with a statement of his purpose. He says he will honor Moses' words because Moses has found grace and I have known you in an intimate way. But once again, Moses is going to press because he wants a sign. And this time the Lord grants him that request, but in a very unique way. Look in verses 18 through 23. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion upon whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is a very famous moment. I think most of us know this from somewhere. I'm sure this the scene of Moses getting a glimmer or glimpse of God in some form. And this is a proposal that Moses first makes to the Lord. He makes it on the basis of his desire for a sign. Remember, up to this point, Moses has been meeting with the Lord only in the form of a cloud uh, or with fire and thunder. These are manifestations of God's glory, his Shekinah glory, we would call it. And they are only physical representations of God. They are not God himself. And so for weeks now up on the mountain, Moses has been conversing with God. But now what Moses says is, if it is true that you and I have an intimate relationship based on grace now, then I would like a sign of that new intimate relationship. And the sign is I want to see your glory in its fullness rather than only these indirect manifestations. The Lord agrees to that request as a sign, but with significant limitations. And those limitations are also grace to Moses. Sometimes kids don't know what they're asking for when they ask for things. And in a similar way, I think Moses couldn't have understood what he was asking for. And so God has to correct him on the request. But in the correction, God begins to speak in covenantal language in verse 19. 
First, he says he will allow his goodness to pass in front of Moses. The word goodness is tub in, in Hebrew, T-U-B. It simply means a good thing or the best of something. So you could say the Lord is going to show the fullness of his goodness manifested to Moses. Then, secondly, the Lord says, I'll proclaim my name before you. This is the same name of God that no Jew henceforth will pronounce and that we write in Scripture, YHWH. It's the name that marks God's character and his fullness. So he's sharing with Moses his form and glory. He's sharing his name in its fullness. And then thirdly, he says, I will be gracious upon those whom I choose. And then finally, he says, I will show compassion on those whom I choose. Now, why are those statements added in? How does that fit to what's being accomplished here? Well, God has put a limit on this covenant. The covenant was grace centered, not behavior centered, not two way, but one way. But God is making clear that it is not a covenant that promises grace and compassion to everyone. It is a covenant that promises it to Moses personally and to the nation generally, but within the nation to those whom I will have compassion on and to those whom I will have mercy on, to those whom I choose, not to the wholeness of the nation necessarily. Not all who are Jews, all who are in Israel, will necessarily receive his loving kindness and his grace. The Lord still intends, for example, to hold all of that generation of Israel that violated the covenant at the mountain guilty for that sin. They are not going to receive his compassion and loving kindness. They are under condemnation for that sin, and that is his choice. And then lastly, God spells out how he intends to reveal to Moses his glory in keeping with Moses' request for a sign. He is not going to show his face, he says. And the reference to face here is an anthropomorphism. It's a fancy word for just the simple idea that human characteristics can be assigned to God so that we can better relate to him, knowing that he is not physical at all. He's entirely spirit, according to Scripture. So we are not speaking about literal descriptions of his being. He doesn't have a face any more than he has hands or feet, not in the sense of human beings. And as we saw even earlier today in chapter 4 of John, when Jesus said the Father is all spirit, which is why we need to worship him in spirit and in truth. So the word face here is not a literal reference. It's an anthropomorphism. It refers to the full expression of God's glory, to witnessing the full expression of God's glory. To see God's face is to see everything we can see of him. You could get a better appreciation of what we're saying when you think about how human beings relate to one another. When I look at someone's face, I have a far better appreciation for who they are than if I look only at their back. It's still them in either case. But if you've never seen anybody except from behind, do you really know who they are? There's a very limited understanding of them from that perspective. And that's why we use this human characteristic in describing seeing God's fullness, not because he is that way, but because it's a better understanding for us of what it means to see his face versus to see his back. It is the difference between seeing all of who he is in his glory versus seeing a glimpse of it, a smaller amount of it, if you will. So God tells Moses, no one can see me in my fullness and, and live. And the reason for that relates to our sinfulness. God is so pure and so holy and just that he cannot allow sin to coexist in the fullness of his glory. He cannot permit it to exist while it is in his presence. He can permit it to exist for a time outside his presence. But if it enters into his presence, he must judge it immediately as his perfect Nature requires as an analogy, a perfect judge in a courtroom, for example, a perfect judge, a man who never makes a mistake, always convicts the guilty, always lets the innocent free, you know, a fictitious judge. He could allow a criminal to go unpunished so long as that criminal does not come and stand in his courtroom on trial. As long as he's hanging around in the halls or still in the jail or still awaiting detention and apprehension, as long as that person exists outside his presence and authority, then he can tolerate that in a sense. Doesn't like it, doesn't want it to stay that way forever, but he can live with it. But if that person is brought into his presence and must stand for judgment in front of him, then the perfect nature of the judge requires that at that point justice must be served. In a sense, that's how you can understand God in his fullness and us in our sinfulness. So God is doing Something of grace here by withholding his fullness from a sinful man, Moses, for he does not want to vanquish Moses. And so the Lord's solution 
is to place Moses in a recessed part of the rock on the mountain of Horeb in Sinai specifically. And from within that cleft, Moses is only going to be able to see a narrow sliver of space in front of him. And from that vantage point, God now can control Moses' exposure to him. And so the Lord is only going to reveal to Moses what he wants to reveal to Moses while Moses remains protected in this cleft from any kind of immediate judgment from seeing more than he should. And then God says the fullness of his glory is going to pass in front of this little opening in the rock. But even then, God's going to cover it so you can't see him as he goes by. But after he has passed in front of the cleft, as he's moved past it, then he will allow Moses to see something. But at that point, he says, Moses will only see my back, not my face. Well, he doesn't have a back any more than he has a face. So again, what we're saying is the fullness of God will no longer be there. In fact, the word for back in Hebrew is the same word for afterglow. What he's saying is you're going to see a reflection of me. Or like a photograph is not the real thing, but a representation of what was somewhere at one point in time. He'll be seeing a glow or an image of what God has left behind after God has passed by. That's the best God can let him see. So the Lord executes this plan of granting Moses this sign. And the point of the sign, of course, is proof to Moses that there has been this new covenant, this new agreement put in place, a promise of grace. That takes us into chapter 34, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and protect yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and he went to Mount Sinai. As the Lord commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. So to begin this chapter, the Lord orders Moses, it's time for us to cut new stone tablets like the ones that you broke when you came down the first time. But by ordering him to cut these new tablets, the Lord is indicating here already that he intends to reestablish the covenant of law. With Israel. So we're going to see the Lord reinitiate or reinstate the covenant in the latter part of this chapter. But for now, we just need to understand that the law and the covenant of law is not going to be dissolved after all as a consequence of the nation's sin. The Lord will explain later in the chapter why he's going to have it continue. But the covenant is going to change as well. The terms of it will change from the way it was originally given to the way God is now going to reinstate it. Meanwhile, the Lord is going to grant Moses the sign of his grace that he promised him. The Lord says that nothing can be on the mountain except Moses himself. Not even the herds may graze on the mountain. And then Moses cuts the stones as directed. And then the Lord passes in front of Moses as he promised. And as he passes, he declares that word loving kindness again. If you were to do a study in the Old Testament of covenants throughout the Old Testament, one of the things you would see coming up time and time again is this word, loving kindness. It is a covenantal word. It is a word that means God is putting himself in a relationship with someone else, a relationship that establishes his grace and his favor in their life, irrespective of what they may say or do. It is loving kindness. It is a kind of dedicated, lifelong kindness that God is extending to someone as a function of his grace. God says, that is the God I am, passing in front of you. And he gives a testimony of how he assigns his grace and his loving kindness. He says, the compassion and grace and mercy of God is vast. The Lord says he assigns it to thousands, which can also be translated in Hebrew, families or clans. In other words, God is prepared to show mercy to families and clans of sinners, whole groups of them, if you will. And by the word family, it also implies down through generations. But then nevertheless, he says, I am also prepared to hold the guilty accountable. 
There will be those within the clans and within the families of the nation that will see my wrath for their sin. And this wrath will play out over generations as well, since sin itself is inherited. So will the wrath come with it. So the Lord is making this point that there is a difference between those who receive his grace and those who will not. Well, what makes the difference between those? Why is it that as he extends this relationship to Moses and to the people, one of grace, he is putting an asterisk next to some in the nation of Israel? Well, as the Lord said earlier, he will show compassion on those he will show compassion, meaning it is a matter of God's will alone that determines this. Moses had requested grace and mercy, both for himself and for the people of Israel. But the Lord responds with his promise of grace to Moses, certainly. But in the sign of the promise, he makes clear this grace that I am manifesting to you now. It's grace that goes to whom I please, where I please. It is here that you see the formation of a principle that runs throughout the Bible from this point forward. And that is the principle of a remnant in Israel. Israel is a nation of a remnant. Receiving God's grace. God's covenant of law is given to all Israel. And its purpose and function is to hold all Israel accountable for their sin. And to condemn all Israel and really the world indirectly. But God's promise of favor or grace that he's now giving as well is one that is limited by his own words here to those he chooses to a remnant. That's the teaching Paul gives in Romans 9 through 11, which we've done here in years past when we studied Romans. He culminates in Romans 9 through 11 in Romans 11 saying this, Romans 11, 5 and 6. He says, in the same way, then, meaning just as it has always been, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Then Paul says, but if it is by grace It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So he's making clear that God's favor to those in Israel who form the remnant is a favor based on his choice, a gracious choice, not on the basis of their works by law, not on the basis of what they earned according to some law covenant, but on the basis of his grace, according to his loving kindness. It did not depend on law. So then in response to the Lord's declaration, Moses were told bows low and worships. And then he requests that the Lord reestablish the law covenant with his people. Then in verses nine and onward, we see the opportunity for Moses to ask the Lord to reestablish his covenant. This being the law covenant now, the one that he gave at the mountain and ask God to reestablish that. Verse nine, he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. Then God said, behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the peoples among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out. The Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. Watch yourselves that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. You are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time in the month of Aviv in the month of Abib. You came out of Egypt. The first offspring from every womb belongs to me and all your male livestock. The first offspring from cattle and sheep. You shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. You shall celebrate the feast of weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. 
Three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your borders and no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with unleavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of Passover to be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you. And with Israel. So the Lord summarizes the law again to remind Moses of all that the Lord had spoken. He begins it, though, with a very interesting promise. In verse 10, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he says, before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the peoples among whom you will live will see the working of the Lord. This is a promise that is not fulfilled until the time of tribulation. Remember that it is this covenant, the covenant of law, which gives God the basis on which he acts against Israel in the time of tribulation to bring all the judgments that come upon them. This is a reference back to teaching we've done in part here, but also more in depth in our revelation class, where we learned that this covenant is the basis by which God holds Israel accountable for their sin under the covenant, but also brings them back into the bond, brings them back into a faithful relationship at the end. Of tribulation. Here you see him already speaking for why this covenant is going to be reinstated. Because he intends to use it against them to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, ultimately later to bring them back to himself. So if they only knew why he was reestablishing it, I wonder if Moses would be so adamant about seeing it come back. But it does come for good reason in the end. What you have to remember is the formal reinstatement of this covenant does not come until Deuteronomy which is nearly 40 years from now. That's with a new generation of Israel after the older generation had all died out. So with all of the sons and daughters of this generation, that covenant is reestablished. That's why the word Deuteronomy is assigned to that final book. The word means the second law. So it is the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy that establishes God's covenant with them as they enter again. And that is done with a believing generation as opposed to the unbelieving generation he is dealing with here. So the wait for their death was a requirement. Now we see him simply renewing it in the sense that he is promising that it will continue and it will regulate their life, even now in those 40 years. Most of the terms you read there are exactly the same things we've read already. In fact, he's just summarizing the high points of the law to make clear that it's back in effect. There is going to be one particular change that comes up a little later that we'll mention in a little bit. Notice the Lord emphasizes most of all the laws concerning idolatry. Well, that makes perfect sense, considering how we got here. So they are not to associate with the people of Canaan. They are not to fall prey to idolatry. This is a reminder, by the way, of a very basic principle of Scripture. When God's people bind themselves with the world, we do not make the world more holy by our association. It's always the opposite. The world corrupts us when we bind ourselves to it. And that's the Lord's concern here. Don't make covenants with the people of Canaan. Don't have your men and your women mixed together with them because the effect of that is they'll cause you to worship their idols. You won't cause them to be faithful followers of Yahweh. That's why Paul tells us not to be unequally yoked as well. Only by a shared faith in the promises of God, which is a spirit-created faith, can there be a true yoking according to Scripture. Interestingly, verse 24, the Lord promises that when they leave their property to do that three times a year trip up to Jerusalem to worship as required, he says, I promise your homes and your land will not be disturbed in your absence. That's really fascinating. That's such a powerful reminder of how our obedience to God's commandments can bring blessings, making our obedience that much easier. He says, you don't have to worry that if you left for the time it takes to walk to Jerusalem and back, something bad's going to happen to your home while you're gone. I'll make sure nothing bad happens. What an awesome promise. So we don't have to worry about the consequences of obedience. We just have to realize we'll be blessed in whatever form they take. Now, there is that change I mentioned. We'll come to Numbers 3 to see that. There is a change in the law as a result of the sin of Israel at the mountain. You don't see it here. But if you were to read further through the law into Numbers, Numbers chapter 3, we discover that the Lord will now, from this point forward, only permit the Levites to serve him in the temple where beforehand he had said it would be the firstborns of every tribe who would be the priests in the nation. But in Numbers 3, we hear this, Numbers 3, 5 through 13. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. So the firstborn had been intended to be consecrated. Now they are remaining consecrated, but not permitted to serve in the priesthood. The original command was that all tribes could participate. Now only the Levites will, because they're the only tribe to stand with Moses against the sin of idolatry at the mountain. So the Levites alone now serve. But of course, God always had this in mind. There's never plan B with God, right? Everything is part of plan A. And we can tell that he always had it in his mind that Levites would serve because he created 13 tribes for that very reason. So there would be 12 in the land and one living in the temple or supported in the temple. So having received the renewing of this covenant and the law, now Moses comes down the mountain a second time, still holding the tablets a second time. But this time something is different. Verse 28. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all of the rulers in the congregation returned to him. And Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out, he spoke to the sons of Israel, which he had been commanded. The sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. I wonder what was going through Moses' mind as he walked down the mountain a second time holding the tablets, not sure of what he would find when he got down to the bottom again. You wonder if he's thinking, I swear, if I see them with another calf down there, that's it. I'm not doing this another time. Notice he spends 40 days on the mountain again. And we're told this time he never eats or drinks. I assume that's also the case for the first time. We just didn't hear it mentioned in the first time, but now we hear it mentioned. So clearly the Lord sustains him without food or drink for 40 days. That is a powerful example of the truth of Jesus's words when he said, Matthew 4, 4. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, in the case of Matthew 4, Jesus was teaching that our eternal life is sustained Ultimately, not by physical means, but by spiritual means, by the power of God's word. But here you see a dramatic proof of the power of God's word to sustain both spiritually and even physically when necessary. Once again, Moses descends the mountain with the word of God. And then we're told as he comes down this time, his face is glowing. That did not happen after the first time he was up on the mountain for 40 days, which is an interesting change. Why now? Why not the first time? This shining of Moses' face is another example of the afterglow that he himself witnessed when he was in the cleft of the rock. It's just happening to him now, and others can see it. So each time he comes to speak with God in the tent, the same effect would happen. He'd leave the tent, he'd come down, his face is shining with this reflected glory of God. We're told that the effect was so unnerving to the people of Israel the first time, they all run from him. And he's there to tell them something. And he's, would you come back here, please? I can't talk. If you all run from me. So Aaron and the leaders come back and he talks to them. And then it says all the people came back as well. And he commands them and he relates to them everything he's told to tell them. But after that point, he goes to wearing a veil on his face. So he would walk around with a veil when he's in the camp. They couldn't see the face of Moses through the veil. And then when he goes back to see God, he'd take the veil off, of course, so that he could speak to God. 
Now, you might assume, we might assume from the text of Exodus 34, that the reason Moses started putting on the veil was simply because people were uncomfortable looking at a man's face glowing. But Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians that that was not the reason Moses did it. That there was a different reason that Moses took to wearing a veil. And you read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 18. Paul says this, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to even to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, well, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Well, time doesn't permit us to do an in-depth treatment of this passage, and it's an important passage, but there are a few highlights that apply to Exodus 34, and that's what I'm going to hit for us tonight. Paul compares two covenants in this passage. He's comparing the covenant of the law with the new covenant of grace in Christ. Now, he calls the old covenant a covenant of letters engraved on stone. He calls it a ministry of death, but the new he calls a covenant of the spirit, of life, of a ministry of righteousness. Both covenants, Paul says, were revealed with a measure of glory. The old came with the glory that God revealed in the shining face of Moses. That's the glory he's referring to when he says the old came with glory. But that glory, Paul says, was a fading glory. That's the first time we hear this. It's not given to us in Exodus. But we find out here that the glory of God's shining in Moses' face was not permanent. It would slowly fade away. It would come back in full force after the next visit. But then after he left, it would start to fade again. God designed it that way to send a message. Paul says it was this fading quality of the glory of God that caused Moses to begin wearing the veil. Paul says in verse 13 that Moses took to wearing it so that Israel would not be able to look at the fading of God's glory. He didn't want the people to see that the glory of God leaves after a while. He didn't like that notion that told them that God's glory didn't stay around. Well, Paul then ends by teaching in that passage that Moses creates a beautiful picture of the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The hearts of the people in Israel in the desert, Paul says, were hardened by God, in other words, just as the way God did it to Pharaoh in Egypt. So that even as the law of God was read to them, they could not see the glory of God in it. They could see it in Moses' face, but they couldn't appreciate it in the word of God. They couldn't appreciate the testimony of Christ and of the message of grace that was hidden in all of the pictures that we've studied in the course of studying the law. That was lost on that generation. The truth of those things was hidden from them. And the hiding of the glory of God in the law was pictured by Moses hiding the glory of his face from the people of Israel. They could not see the glory of God in the face of Moses, just as they could not see the glory of Christ as revealed in the word of God in the law. The veil over their hearts today, Paul says, is further evidence of God's continuing hardening of his people for purposes of his own, with the remnant being the only exception to that. But keep in mind, that's not a cause and effect. It's a result of 
having a heart that doesn't see the spiritual, all I have left is the physical, and so I'm attracted to it, and that's what I base my religious activity and worship in. So the veil over their hearts, Paul says, the one that exists even to today, is only lifted by Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our salvation, Hebrews says. So he says, even today, when the law of Moses is read to someone, Paul says, and he's speaking about the Jews who heard it read every time they walked into a synagogue on on Saturday or Friday night. He says, even when the law of Moses is read, they do not see it as a picture of Christ unless the veil has been lifted and the veil is only lifted once they're in Christ. So the veil of understanding must be lifted by Christ, from which point forward then they can see the things of Christ in what they could read in the law. Finally, at the end there, Paul alludes to a beautiful picture of Christ in the circumstances of what we're reading here in Exodus 34. He says in verse 18 that today we, the church, are reflecting the glory of God in the way Moses did in the sense that we are being transformed, Paul says, into the glory of Christ by the work of the Spirit. So the sanctification that each of us experience in our walk is a progressive movement toward the glory of Christ so that by our works, our Father in heaven is glorified. By our lifestyle, by who we are in Christ, we are effectively repeating what Moses was doing in the simple form of a shining face. We're doing it in a shining life. Let your light shine so that all men may see and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't put it under a blanket, right? Don't put it behind a veil. So Moses reflected the Lord's glory by his testimony to Israel. We are reflecting the Lord's glory by our testimony to the world. But ours is not one merely of words. It is one of life. Finally, Moses himself becomes a picture of Christ through his intercession in Exodus 34. He sought an intimate relationship with the Father. He asked for the grace of God to be given to his people. He asked to see the Father's glory and have that glory reflected in the world. And then it says the Father responded, saying that he would have mercy on those whom the Father chooses. That mirrors Christ's ministry. For example, Paul begins in Colossians 1, telling us Christ was the reflection of God's goodness, of his fullness in glory. Colossians 1.15, saying, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. So, just as Moses was the one who would represent the fullness of God to Israel, Christ represents the fullness of God in a better way, in a bigger way to us. Then in John's Gospel, we hear Jesus in that long prayer in John 17, when he speaks to the Father in that very unique way that John captures. Listen to what Jesus says and consider it in comparison to what Moses says to the Lord when they met on the mountain. John 17:18, Jesus said, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Just like Moses asked. Then he goes on. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me will be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. So you love me before the foundations for you love me before the foundation of the world. There's some very similar elements if you break the two down next to each other. Jesus is pictured in the way Moses asked for many of the same things, representing another group of God's people whom the Lord had chosen. As we end these chapters, the nation is once again in a covenant of law, one that will eventually be formally instituted in Deuteronomy. But this generation is still bound to endure penalties for their sin, and the nation as a whole will endure penalties far in the future for the failure of this covenant. And that is how God intends it to be. Yet in the midst of all of that, a remnant, a believing element within Israel, chosen by God's gracious choice to receive his compassion, will remain. Meanwhile, God shows grace to Moses as he continues to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to the other patriarchs. And by the renewing of the covenant, the nation now moves forward in building the tabernacle. 
The instructions for building it were given before the fall. Then the fall interceded. Then the question became, will they even need a tabernacle? Now, as their covenant has been renewed, we can go back to building. And that's where chapter 35 picks up the building of that tabernacle, which can now proceed and concludes with the end of the book. So that's what we'll do next week. We'll do the five chapters that consist of the building. There are some interesting moments along the way, but it's mainly a wrap up of the whole book. And it's always fun to finish a book. That makes one of us, right? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and I hope to see you all next week. Father, thank you for the chance to see the glory of Christ reflected in the glory of Moses and the truth of the new covenant and its superiority pictured even in the fall and the violation of the old. That by law, no man may stand. By law, we are all convicted and subject to penalty. But by your grace and your loving kindness and your gracious choice, we may stand not in our own power, but in that you give us through Christ. What better way would there be, Father, to stand but that we would do it in your power, not our own? Thank you for that reminder. Thank you, Father, for the word that shows us the wisdom and the power of God to produce all of these outcomes from thousands and thousands of years and through many generations. We are awe-inspired to see your power, Father. And let us continue to see that in the week that follows as we finish this study. And I thank you, Father, for the chance to be in it for so long and to have learned so much and for you to have brought it to a successful conclusion. Send us away and bring us back. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.